Hi, this is Paul, and you're listening to Arcanex Sessions, episode 119. This week, Ken, Donna, and I will be talking with Mike Eliason, a Seattle-based architect and writer with a particular interest in passive house and not-for-profit housing. Longtime Arconnectors may recognize him by his username, Holtzbox. So I grew up in Germany and Belgium. My dad was in the Air Force. We spent a lot of time looking at cathedrals and small villages, chateaus, probably much more than I would have liked uh, when I was a kid. I uh, went to school, went to Virginia Tech, graduated in 2005. But the fourth year there, they kind of kick everybody out. There's a study abroad program in Switzerland. There's a, a work study program in Chicago that there was at the time. Or you could go and work for a firm essentially for college credit. And a buddy of mine got me a job in the city of Freiburg, uh, which is southwest Germany, about an hour north of Basel. And the firm I worked for did a lot of really innovative stuff, mass timber, low energy buildings. It was kind of an introduction to a lot of the things that probably I brought to Arconnect. I actually met my wife there. We moved back. I had one more year at school, graduated, and then my wife said, okay, we're moving to San Diego, Denver, or Seattle. I kind of figured Seattle was the, the greenest of the three. You know, there's kind of this long, you know, Northwest culture of being environmentally sustainable and sensitive. And so we've been here since 2005, worked for a number of firms doing all kinds of work. So some residential, a lot of public work, clinics, libraries, and the firm I work for now, we do a lot of public work as well, a little bit of residential and commercial, uh, but the bread and butter is uh, transportation. And we do a lot of interesting projects with um, state and local parks departments. Wow, which has been kind of fun. So I always got the sense back when you were very active on the Arconnect forums and you were um, posting things like the minimal details thread and passive house. I swear you were the first time I ever heard anyone use the term passive house was by, by you in the Arconnect forums. I kind of got the feeling that you were using the forums as a way to explore these aspects of practice like passive house and high rise timber or whatever, and alternate ways of urbanism that you were not able to get to in your practice at in Seattle, in the in the firm you were in. Is that accurate? Yeah, I think I use Arconnect really as a sounding board. And also for me, like there's this ongoing research in my head, like I, I kind of have to know about all sorts of things. So mass timber, passive house. At the time, I was really struggling with details and I love you know, just like these really minimal, beautiful details. And so it was really kind of this this outlet for exploration and also for trying to figure out what is the viability of some of these ideas? Is there, you know, if architects are into this, does that mean that, you know, other people could be interested? The mass timber and passive house stuff I learned a little bit about when I was in Germany. I brought it back here. And since then, it's, you know, completely exploded. More so in other places than in Seattle, unfortunately. But it's been really interesting to kind of see all of these things kind of progress over time. And so have you been able to put any of that work into your professional practice here in the in the States? I mean, have you been able to work on any Passive House projects or similar? Yeah, so for a couple of years during the recession, uh, we decided to, a friend of mine decided, and I decided to open our own business, essentially doing Passive House design. And we worked with a lot of developers and homeowners who are interested in and getting there, the difficulty was always education, products, the process was long and arduous. And then just as being a consultant in something that was extremely niche, kind of at the bleeding edge of it, it was never really a, a fully viable model. But uh, we did work on a couple of projects. I worked on the first multifamily project in Seattle, and that was a townhouse that was part of a larger development. The present location, I'm always pushing past the house. In a lot of ways, it's kind of helped inform 
envelope design and, and thinking more holistically about projects. And that's one of the things I really like about Passive House is that you start to think about how all of these things work together. And then on the Mass Timber side as well, we've, uh, we've tried it on a couple of projects to get the numbers to work. Uh, we have a project under construction on South Lake Union right now that we're shooting for something new that hasn't been done in, uh, I think, in Seattle before uh, on the Mass Timber side. So it'll be interesting to see if we can get that going. Mike, just for the listeners out there that are not that familiar with Passive House, I know that you touched on just kind of the, the basic idea behind Passive House, but could you describe it in a little bit more detail to kind of catch people up? What is it and, and what drew you to it? You know, what, what makes it such an important approach to, to building? Yeah, so the, the Passive House primer is essentially a, you're trying to make a building that is ultra-low in energy usage. And the way that you do that is you super-insulate, or as I like to say, you optimize the insulation. You make the building airtight. So through tapes, membranes, and other products, you ensure that there's no air leakage in the building. Uh, and then you basically supply heat very minimally. In some places, you may not need to provide heat at all. And then you provide fresh ventilation. So it's fresh filtered air that uh, is supplied through a heat recovery ventilator. And what that does is it extracts the warm air from your house and then takes that heat and converts it into a portion of it into the incoming fresh air so that you don't get cold drafted air. Essentially, the way it works is you have this hermetically sealed box, but you poke a couple of holes in it and that's how you get your fresh air with the mechanical system. But the thing to me that is really interesting about Passive House, you get a much more durable building and that's part of the QA, QC process of construction. The air quality in the Passive House is superior to any other building I've ever been in. It's much more quieter. And so if you live in an urban environment, that can be a really nice benefit. And then it's just super comfortable. You don't have draft issues. You don't have cold glass. You don't have condensation. We have some single pane windows in our house. And even in temperate Seattle, we still have massive mold issues in the winter just from the buildup of the, the condensation on the inside of the glass. So Passive House has really kind of taken off in a number of places. The next conference is going to be in China which is really interesting. And if you think about, this goes back to the, the filtered air and the low energy side. These are issues that are really large in, in a lot of Asian cities right now, but especially in China, with so much of their power being derived from coal. And we've seen all the photos, right, of Beijing and Shanghai just you know, completely obscured and smog. And so this is kind of a, a way of mitigating some of that. And it'll be interesting to see where things go after that. Is Passive House effective in a variety of climates, or does it kind of specialize in a certain type of climate? No, Passive House is, is really a global standard. You can use it in super cold climates, so up, way up in Norway, Russia, moderate climates, Italy, Seattle, it's viable, California, and even into like hot climates and hot, hot and humid climates. So like Vietnam, I think um, Austrian Embassy in Hanoi is a Passive House building as well. And at the conference last year, there were a couple of delegates from Africa. So it's you're more on the cooling side than on the heating side, whereas, you know, northern climates, you're going to be more on the heating side rather than the cooling side. But the principles apply everywhere. So, Mike, you mentioned that it's it makes for a durable building. And I mean, everything I've heard about Passive House, at least from people who have lived in one or used one, is all the things you say that it's it's the air quality is just great and it's quiet and there's no drafts and everything just feels very comfortable in very subtle ways that you don't really think about until you then go to like a normal building and realize, oh, yeah, my Passive House is way nicer than this. But my and especially now when you say that that Africa is looking at it, I'm thinking about the building methods. And I cannot seem to get my head around the fact that so much of what Passive House 
construction is dependent on is is adhesives, like taping up every seam. And it just appears to me, and I don't know a lot about Passive House, so tell me if I'm totally wrong, but it seems to me that you're putting so much of your faith in adhesives lasting for a long time so that none of those taped seams come free and start to let in seeping air. Am I having, you know, am I being needlessly worried about this? And in a place like, you know, in different climates, like I'm thinking Africa or Cambodia, could they build in a way that is sort of suited regionally? Or is it really always coming down to sort of sealing things and taping them? So you don't have to rely solely on tapes to do your air barrier. There are other products that you could use. There are some weather barriers that are fluid applied. They could be utilized. You could do membranes. They work in conjunction with tapes. So the issue with the tapes is always going to be a little bit of a, you never know when tape is going to fail. But I feel like that's an issue in any, in any building, right? Like you never know when something is going to, is going to fail. And so you have to have a plan for kind of mitigating that. But all of the companies that are working on these high-performance tapes, I mean, they, they test the durability of these products indoors, outdoors, underwater, in all kinds of different conditions. And then I think, you know, on top of that is the tape itself isn't necessarily going to be exposed to the outdoors for long, right? So we're going to be burying it under, under insulation. It will be behind the cavity wall. You know, so they're relatively protected, both from a thermal standpoint, and from a kind of a building movement standpoint than, say, if it were exposed somewhere. Uh, as far as regional materials, this is actually where I think Passive House gets really interesting. So in the early iterations of Passive House, okay, a lot of buildings are concrete in Central Europe. So really the default mode was, well, we'll just throw insulation on the outboard of it. And kind of it became this game of better windows. You don't need as much insulation. Or colder climate, you need better windows, but you need more insulation. So where I think it gets really interesting, and I, to me, one of the things that's nice about Passive House now is we're moving towards removing plastics from a lot of projects. Uh, so Andrew Mickler talks about decarbonizing your Passive House. And I think this is like a really, really cool concept, right? So we, we're not using plastic insulation. And after, you know, what happened in London, was that last, it was just last year, yeah. right? And China had fires. It was kind of all of these things are kind of related. And so, it's, so if we mo- remove the foam insulations from our building. And so we're using more organic materials or recycled materials that are relatively benign. And then we can kind of move back towards more traditional methods of practice and construction. I think we can come up with some really fascinating buildings. So in Africa, you could end up with this assembly that's utilizing mud brick and, and kind of a, and I don't, the exterior insulation might end up being something else like rock sole or there are a couple of different things that you could do, but you can still incorporate these traditional uh, methods of construction. The other thing that's always really kind of fascinated me about Passive House, and that this goes back to my time in working in Germany a little bit, is the processes of construction, prefabrication, for years have been light years better than anything that we were doing. So a lot of the stuff that Katera is attempting to do now, there are companies that have been doing that in Austria and Germany for you know, 10, 15 years. So they're taking it a step further and, and you know, they're going to deliver a whole building and kind of everything around it. But in terms of the prefabrication, the mass timber, the passive house, you know, that stuff is, is kind of, it's not old hat, but it's, it's not uncommon. And so it's really exciting to see that those ideas are starting to find a, a foundation here in the U.S. Finally. Finally. Is passive house comparable in cost to traditional building? So this is a good question and it's a difficult question. It's, it's, uh, in the U S it depends on the building typology. 
It depends on what your reference construction is. The big issue in the U.S. is we don't have really have a government that is pushing nearly zero energy buildings. We don't have a mandate <laughs> like they've had in Europe for a long time, right? So we, part, of, part of it in Europe is the sticks and carrots. So there's funding to help incentivize the development and construction of a lot of these buildings. So there's more of an infrastructure. And I think that's really what it comes down to. There's, there's an infrastructure that helps educate contractors and the trades. There's infrastructure around products that we, we're just, we're so far behind on, on a lot of that stuff that, they can reach cost parity in, in Austria on these huge projects and even on smaller projects. In the U.S., we're not quite there. But there's another side of the passive house that is interesting in that there's you're not just paying for a building when you, when you build a building, right? You have ongoing operational right. costs. And so the way that passive house really st- is starting to work now is when you look at your, your whole cost, your operational cost and your mortgage from your construction those two numbers still, in a lot of instances, end up being the same or less than if you went with a more traditional construction typology and then just kind of, you know, your more generic energy consumption. And so it's, it's really finding creative ways to, to balance that, I think, is where the U.S. is going to have a lot more success with hitting passive house. And I think we're starting to see that New York. And New York is easy because their energy costs are much higher. They're double, I think, for kilowatt hour versus Seattle, and then their construction costs are high. So, you know, we're seeing projects in New York City that essentially there's no cost to hit Passive House. Uh, it's kind of a mild climate anyway, for the most part. And then, you know, their energy costs are reduced, you know, by 60 to 40 to 60% or somewhere around there. So when they start leveraging the two, okay, economically, it makes sense. And then you start looking at these other factors, right? The, the air quality, the durability, not having to deal with construction or, you know, just random street noise at three o'clock in the morning to the degree that you would if you had, you know, single or double pane windows. Uh, I think it starts to become a better selling sales point. Uh, maybe that's not the right term, but it, it, it starts to make the case uh, much easier. You know, Mike, I think you're shortchanging our government. I mean, <laughs> on the one hand, gold plating is pretty warm, as a, as a, as a, has its own like source of heat and uh, embodied um, warmth. Um, the other, which is interesting, um, because at the same time, we have a government that doesn't really care about energy, energy modeling or efficiency, has put a tax on steel and aluminum. So it would seem that uh, timber framing is, is going to see its it's going to see it's like, oh, it's moment in the sun with the high, wow, high yeah. uh, steel costs. So, I mean, so I'm, I'm wishing you luck. We have our first uh, timber project here in uh, in Minneapolis with T3. And in fact, I work right next to that building. Oh, nice. Michael, yeah. So Michael Green has kind of been the, the progenitor. Is that the right term? The uh, the facilitator in a lot of uh, Northwest buildings are um, mass timber buildings. Uh, and as you say, not just in the Northwest, but I think he's working in New York City now. He's worked in Minneapolis. So the, his reach has been really kind of effective uh, and, and inspirational. It's funny that you mentioned the, the tariff, though. I just uh, got an email from a project manager the other day. Uh, wood, I think, in the Northwest is up about 25 or 30%. And then I think there are some wood tariffs. Is it uh, going to be the ongoing battle with Canada versus on the wood, uh, the wood, the timber? I think so. I, you know, so much of the, the mass timber infrastructure is in Canada right now. There's Nordic Wood in Quebec, and there's Structure Lamb, and there's some other prefab companies in uh, in British Columbia. In the U.S., 
DR Johnson, I think, is getting a couple of plants going. Katera's got a couple of plants under construction. So really, and then there's also StructureCraft who are doing dowel laminated timber, which is, do you know what nail laminated timber is? No, explain. <laughs> okay, so uh, nail laminated timber, this goes back to the, you sent an email, Donna, about the bullet the bullet center. So when they built the, the floors of the bullet center, it's essentially a two by six laid on ends, and then it's nailed into another board and they kind of just gang it up that way. And if you look at some of the pictures online, right, there's this one guy, big muscles, you know, pulling up these two by sixes or two by eights, whatever they use for the floor and positioning each one into place, fastening it, and then repeating the process, right? It's this kind of harrowing, laborious process. Well, when I was working in Germany 14 years ago, 15 years ago, there's this product called Brettstoppel. It's essentially... You take two by sixes. The first iterations of Brent Stoppel, they did the same thing, right? So you'd have this panel of two by sixes laid on ends, and you would just kind of fasten each one. What they found was the nails become problematic, just expansion uh, due to um, you know, kind of temperature differentials. Or if you want to go back in and, and cut a window or something, right, the nails become an issue. <laughs> so what, mm-hmm. what they've moved to is uh, dowel laminated timber. So they drill these holes. They go all the way down the length of the, the panel. And then they insert a dowel, and then the dowel just kind of expands and is friction fit. And so you get this panel that's complete, completely made of wood. Um, just solid wood, like butter, like just slamming it all together like butter. <laughs> right, so that's dowel laminated timber, and it's just, it's just a really elegant product. You can get it in different, but it's just like any other, like glue lamps, right? So you have yeah. your different visual grades of glue lamp. Uh, and then there are different things that you can do to the finish, right? So you could go two by four, two by six, two by four, two by six. So you get this plus minus effect, right? Which, you know, could be really you know, interesting as a, as a wall or a ceiling element. The other thing that's really cool is you can put it horizontally, uh, lay it down like a floor, pour concrete over it, and you've got yourself a comp- composite slab. So it becomes this really interesting, versatile product that nobody in the U.S. is making. But you, by gosh, those Canadians are, are kind of grabbing it by the teeth. So, oh man, <laughs> something about concrete and wood, though. I, I, just the idea of pouring concrete against wood has always bothered me. I've never liked what? those those materials touching. What they just in that way? I mean, they would. Yeah, yeah. It just seems like they. Yeah, I, I. That this goes back to the Cranbrook materials thing. That one of them is about cold and wet, and the other is about air and warmth. That's sounds like a like sounds like a, a hippie. Do I just sound like a hippie? <laughs> I don't even live in Seattle. No. No, I was going to say like a a 60-year-old professor and a college student. Yeah. (laughs) So you brought up the Bullet Center, Mike. I want to get your opinion on it. And for people who don't know the Bullet Center, we can put some links in the show notes. But yeah, can you sort of explain what why the bullet center was a big deal in Seattle. And then I want to know if you just think it's a good building, you know, as an architect, regardless of its uh, energy and construction performance, do you like it as a building? Yeah. So the bullet center was this, uh, was I think the first living building challenge certified building. I don't remember if it was the first one, but it was the first in Seattle and it's a five or six story mid-rise building in the Capitol Hill, heart of the city. It's in this really prominent corner. Uh, and I think it's, I think it's a great building in terms of what it's trying to do. It, it's made of wood, low energy, 
building automated systems to control the energy. And then what they did was they weren't quite sure if their building was going to be efficient enough. So they put this huge photovoltaic array because the living building challenge requires you for some odd reason to produce all of your energy for the building that you use in the year on site. But their building was so small footprint wise that they had to cantilever out. I think it was 10 or 15 feet, you know, the perimeter of the building into the public sphere. Um, I think the building is great other than this one move, because if you were to continue this kind of effect all the way down the street, right, you would have like this, covered brow over every building and your view of the sky would be diminished even further. So the solar panels project out into the public right-of-way, is that right? Over, like, over the street? Yeah. I mean, I think it looks awesome from a, as an individual building, but I guess you're right. If you were to continue that model across the whole thing, you'd... uh... My issue with Living Building Challenge is that the political limits of a building site do not line up with the physical limits of energy consumption uh, which is, it's really, it's the, the earth, right? Is the, uh, the parameters for, for energy production and consumption. And so trying to contain that all to like a building site, especially in urban environments, has always been a little bit wonky. It's always been an issue for me. I think they're getting a little bit better about it. And I also, you know, as, as Passive House becomes more integrated into some of these projects, they don't need as much photovoltaic area to, to offset their annual consumption. And so maybe a lot of those problems go away. But it is kind of my one hang up with, with LVC. The, the building itself is, is kind of fascinating. It's, it's fairly simple. There's nothing overly complex about it. The level of the light quality on the inside, you know, it's fine. You, really the things that kind of disturb me the most were just the materials on the facade. They feel a little bit cheap. It's not, right? It's not cheap. It just, it looks a little bit kind of, it's trying to be industrial, but it's not really. But I, I think overall the building is, is really, it's pretty successful. I don't know if they're fully leased up now for a long time. They were trying to get fully leased. In terms of something that's scalable, which to me, right, like that's one of the the things I like about Passive House is, okay, for a long time, it didn't really seem scalable, but now it's kind of taking off all over the place. LBC itself and then just kind of the, the, the way that the Bullet Center was constructed really doesn't seem scalable. But now that we have some of these Canadian products, you know, so like the, the, the Dow laminated timber, you know, I think a lot of these buildings can start to go up faster. And I, I think the T3 building, the Brock Commons at, at UBC, which is the 18-story mass timber building, but I think they start to become really good case studies for, for how and why, you know, we can do, you know, these cost-effective uh, kind of urban mass timber buildings. So uh, I love the building. I, I, I mean, I, I've never been to it. I've only, you know, I've stalked it on Google Street View and I think it looks awesome. But uh, and it I, I think it. Yeah, I think it looks great. And I love that it's um, sort of saying we're not going to try to look like any other kind of building. We're just going to sort of express the technological yeah, systems on the in a way like the center Pompidou does a little bit, maybe, you know, I like that aspect of it. And I feel like a way to get towards more of an acceptance of green technologies in building is to show people that they are beautiful in a way that, you know, they don't look like a, a classical building or whatever, or a McMansion for God's sake, but you know, that they look cool as these technologies. Now, then when you get back to Passive House though, Passive House tends to be, they don't tend to have all these like bells and whistles of green walls and, you know, sunshades that move with the, during the day or anything. They seem, Passive House projects to me for the most part seem really restrained visually, aesthetically. Yeah, no, I think it's that's a fair critique. Uh, the early iterations of Passive House were pretty austere. I think construction in Europe in, in general 
is pretty austere. If you're taking a building and just throwing on a concrete building and throwing on insulation, there's not too much that you can really do with it. But I think what's happening, and there are a number of projects, especially in the last couple of years, there's a couple in China that are really, really kind of intriguing. Moving away from uh, this kind of this restrained box. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, I, and I think that you kind of hit the nail on the head, right? Like one of the things as a passive house consultant that we always struggled with was everyone just going off on, you know, just kind of everything is just an ugly box. Mm-hmm. Um, and, it, and I think at the time, that's kind of all anyone really knew how to do. The program itself wasn't sophisticated and it didn't really allow you to do anything kind of complex. And the programs that they're using now, they you know, allow much more complex modeling. I think the people that started it, you know, 10, 15 years ago are much more kind of confident in what they can do. And so they're really starting to push the boundaries of, of what you can kind of achieve. I, I think at some point they both energy wise, they're about, you know, living building challenge and passive house are about the same. And it, a lot of the same people are kind of working in both spheres now. And so I think we will probably hit the synthesis where, you know, they both start kind of looking. You can't really look at one and, and say it's a passive house or it isn't, or mm-hmm. it's a living building challenge or it's not. So I, I will say that you're absolutely spot on that so many of the early buildings were kind of banal and boring. Going back to my, my, my density thing, though, um, you know, most buildings are, are banal and boring. <laughs> That's kind of what I love about them. So I don't know if you all saw the uh, the blog post that Kate Wagner, McMansion Hell, who has been a podcast guest recently put up that says basically every building is interesting. You just need to, you know, dig into why it looks the way it does. And every building has a story, which I I do think is true. But Mike, when you say that every building's boring, I think a lot of people sometimes can confuse boring with with minimal. And and going back to your previous uh, activity in the discussion forum, one of my favorite threads of all time was minimal details that you had started. And and it makes me it makes me curious because when I first started uh, studying architecture in the mid 90s, I went to the University of Oregon specifically because it was one of the only really strong programs in sustainable architecture, which I was very passionate about when I started. Well, I still am. But what one thing that frustrated me was that a lot of people in that community at the time were so much, they were so into sustainable design and functionality in terms of sustainability and energy efficiency with very little interest in in, uh, aesthetic design. And that at the time, it really frustrated me. I think we've come a long way since then. So I'm, I'm curious. I mean, you're somebody that obviously respects and admires uh, a high level of design based on the kind of content that you've shared. And you also are very uh, active in in uh, passive house and sustainable design. Who are some of the people, in your opinion, that are really doing an amazing job, both pushing sustainability and technologies that kind of utilize more, more energy efficient uh, building strategies that are also doing really, really beautiful work? That is a good question. So in North America, I would say Michael Green, I think, is getting there. Michael Green just, I think, wrapped up his first Passive House project. Um, Michael Green, I think, does really, really interesting work. A lot of my familiarity is uh, is kind of with the, what's going on in Europe. The Vorarlberg scene, so that's kind of east, uh, sorry, western Austria, close to the Swiss border. They've been doing these elegant uh, wood, low-energy projects for it's, it's decades, uh, and there's a lot of really good firms that are that are kind of working in and around that region. So Dietrich Untertree followed. 
Great name. Yeah. You might have to email that to us after this. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I'll send, I can send you guys a bunch of links. No, we'll definitely include these firms in the show notes. So Dietrich, Guntertree, Fowler, they do a lot of public work, a lot of multifamily, um, really, really elegant work. Uh, so there's Baumschlager and Eberle, uh, who are, I think they're stationed in St. Gallen, Vienna, and Zurich. So it's kind of all triangulating for Arlberg. They do some really phenomenal work as well. And then there's some smaller firms in, in that area. So Herman Kaufman, who's been doing kind of mass timber projects for a long time. He actually was a consultant, I believe, on the 18-story mass timber project at UBC. He's got some really, really elegant projects. Bernardo Bader does some really, really great small-scale public works, kindergarten, schools, concrete. He, going back to your your uh, concrete and, uh, and wood uh, position, uh, Donna, I think he... He, his work is really, really elegant in kind of combining those two things. And then there's another architect in Munich, and I'm completely drawing a blank on his name. <laughs> I'll have to send it to you. I, it, I, yeah. I can't recall. And and it's kind of it's all in the same thing. He's you know doing low energy buildings, passive house, and it's just he's got a really good sense of uh, of design. Um, the partie of his projects is really, really strong. So I think there's a lot of work in that area, that region. There's just, it's phenomenal. Like I could go, one of one of the things that I've wanted to do for a really, really long time, besides going to grad school in, in Europe, is uh, spending a significant chunk of time just talking to these architects, exploring these buildings. There's so much knowledge uh, and so many good projects in essentially a 200-mile radius that almost nobody knows about. I mean, it's, it's super frustrating because all of these architects are doing phenomenal work, but there's just, you know, there's, there's really not an outlet for them to, to kind of project it towards everybody else. And, you know, I, I've, I've been tweeting and writing and posting about those guys, you know, for, for years at this point, but, but really those are a lot of the firms that I, that I look to and kind of, kind of incorporating, you know, mass timber, passive house, low energy, these really beautiful, elegant details. It's, it's really just, and then it's the, the, the landscape there is, is really similar to the Northwest too. So I have this strong yearning and connection with this place. So. Do you have any thoughts on straw bale construction? I am not a fan of straw bale construction. However, there is a company in Estonia that makes prefabricated straw bale panels. And the reason that I'm not a fan of straw bale is that generally the way the heat flows through the straw isn't the most optimal means to getting a low energy building, right? So the, if you orient the, the strands of the straw one way, it effectively acts as a bit like a straw. And if you go the other way, then it's problematic as well. Uh, and what this company does is they have this machine that I think it combines the two, right? So there's strands going one direction and then strands going the other. And you, you get these prefabricated wall assemblies that are they're kind of chunky, right? It's like 30 inches wide by whatever it fits on a truck. But they're being used on these passive house projects. And it's like this elegant, low energy material used in a really, really kind of modern and innovative way. And so, you know, for me, like those are the things that I find really, really kind of fascinating. It's like, how do we take this old technology that's really interesting, but it's not ideal for a structural load. It's not great from an energy standpoint. Uh, and if it gets wet, then it's also problematic, right? So it's like, how do we take that technology, but then do something you know, apply it in a way that kind of starts to address all of these things where it's deficient at. And the name of the company is also escaping my mind. But so there's, you know, this is architect in Slovakia. It's used this 
a number of their projects. And it's structural, it's the thermal barrier, and effectively you just coat it with, with plaster. Uh, and you have this, you know, low energy, you know, really stunning wall assembly and you're good to go. And I do want to talk a little bit about density in, in the city, but it, this conversation is making me realize really just how broad ranging your knowledge is on how things are built around the world. I mean, you living in Seattle have some some experience with uh, the housing market there and the the sort of fight for densifying the city and making it a great place to live a car free lifestyle and those kinds of things. But these these places that, that you're that these smaller you know these European architects that are experimenting with or not even experimenting at this point because they've been using it for a while with these kinds of technologies building technologies. How do you see the United States bringing? those technologies in in a more significant way, especially if we're struggling to build, you know, I mean, there's all kinds of problems with how we build things in the United States, but, you know, housing is done by developers. They don't want to try anything new. They want to build the same crappy, easy to throw up thing that they have been doing so they can maximize their profit. I mean, can you sort of lead into the density discussion by talking maybe about your experience or understanding of how these European architects are able to do these projects? And you did already say a little bit that it's more supported there because of the the government mandates. But, you know, how do we start to get that happening in the States? So I, I think the, the stick in the carrot aspects of a lot of the European countries is part of it. I think also, I'm going to use this word because I absolutely uh, don't know what else to say, but I think we need to liberalize or de-restrict our zoning and land use laws to kind of allow a lot of these things to happen. Uh, I'm not a libertarian by any means. I identify as a social democrat. I'm a, a big fan of the social democrats that run the city of Vienna and, and build a ton of social housing. I think that right. that's actually a really, really positive model that cities that are struggling with a housing crisis uh, should look to. And I, you know, part of that is you know, none of these cities have single family zoning and three quarters of the lots where housing is legal in Seattle are zoned single family. So I think that but that's that's part of it. I think another part of it too is just developers in Europe seem a little bit more sophisticated in building an urban environment. I will say historically that's true. I think that that's changing, especially like in the city of Seattle where we have a lot of contractors and developers who early on it might have been a struggle for them to build on tight urban lots in a timely manner. I think are, are kind of starting to hit stride. Uh, I'm a little mm-hmm. bit worried that tariffs and everything else are going to bring a lot of the projects that are in the pipeline kind of to a halt. And if other companies keep hiring, that might be super problematic. So I think part of it is we should be looking to what other jurisdictions are doing. And it's, it's, it's also just Seattle's more innovative than San Francisco in some ways on this, right? So I could we could do a five-story building with one stair as long as there were no more than four units per floor. And uh, Mark, what is Mark's last name? Open Scope Studio. Uh, Marcosaurus, Donna. You, you know what I'm talking about. Marcosaurus, yeah. yeah uh, but San I Francisco? <laughs> yeah. Yes, I do know what you're talking about. Mark uh, Hogan. Mark Hogan. Mark Hogan. Yes. <laughs> this is awful. So we've had these you know, kind of extended conversations and, and you know, there's this, everyone who follows me on Twitter knows I'm obsessed with, uh, with one stair buildings, right? So, but that's not legal in San Francisco, I think, or anywhere in California. And I've actually come to find out that it's actually not legal in most places. And then if you look to a place like Vienna or Germany, the German building code allowed single stair residential buildings to go up to, I'm going to get the number wrong, but I want to say it's 60 meters, 180 feet. That might be too high. Maybe it's 40 meters. But so you can have this 
And there's some really nice passive house projects in the heart of Vienna. It's it's eight story building and it only has a single stair. You know, so I think that part of it is is we just need to again we have other issues here like seismic and other stuff as well, but it's really just, we need to allow not just developers because I think developers are just going to do what they're going to do, but we need to allow kind of more collective housing, the space to build and the ability to build. So part of that's going to come down to how to like, I'm a huge advocate for co-housing bow group and cooperatives. Part of that is a lot of, groups that want to do something like this want to have access to funding. So there's the regulatory side, but then there's also kind of need to figure out the, the financial side of, you know, how do we build buildings that, you know, people like me can inhabit and afford, especially in cities that are you know, struggling with house, with housing crises. I mean, one of the, the, you started off by saying, talking about zoning code, you know, one of the things I'm facing and, and I living in Indianapolis, I have been following because my parents lived in Portland for decades and I have been following Seattle news and sort of just, I, 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 I feel like, and I follow you on Twitter. I feel like I, I have a lot of friends in Seattle that I, I pay attention to. So I, I know a little about what's going on out there. And I always think about it in terms of Indianapolis, where we're just starting to get people like moving downtown and there's apartment buildings being built that, you know, the problems that Seattle is facing now in terms of housing and and San Francisco also that, okay, how can we do things in Indianapolis now so that 20 years from now, we're not dealing with those same problems? You know, how can we learn by looking out ahead at what you guys are already having to deal with? And um, one of the things I discovered recently here in Indy was that the city won't approve anything like a bungalow court because they require every house to have a street address. So you can't, you know, put in a something like a court that allows you to push all those houses close together and have them all face each other on a narrow lot because the zoning code just they don't know how to deal with it. They don't know how to deal with the fact that you would build in some way that's different from what they're used to. And so I have been in conversations with people in the city saying, you know, we need to look at how they're dealing with this, things like additional dwelling units and these kinds of things that we don't think are a problem in Indy and they aren't right now, but the, I see it coming, right? I mean, if you could have go back in time 20 years in Seattle, you would change the codes to make it more able to build the things that, that you need, that, the housing that needs to be built right now, right? Yes, majorly. So I, <laughs> Seattle, I think, started to go down the approach that they could have been super innovative. Uh, what they did just about 24, 25 years ago was the city essentially said, we're going to have more growth. We need to plan for that growth. We're going to designate, they call it urban villages. Uh, it's kind of the history of zoning in Seattle is super weird. It's actually apparently fairly common to a lot of other places. Seattle used to allow multifamily buildings pretty much everywhere. And then over time, the swaths of land that were available to build multifamily housing became lesser and less. So the city kind of realized at this point that they needed more land to build multifamily housing. So they essentially said, okay, we're identifying these locations where multifamily housing is primarily going to go. And we'll let you, being the public, kind of shape where and how. I think that there was an opportunity in that to do something really, really innovative. And I look at Vienna and what Vienna has done in the time frame that since, you know, kind of we implemented the urban village strategy and they kind of blow everything that we've done out of the water. Mm-hmm. But I think what happened was a lot of the quote unquote democratic process ended up being captured by homeowners who, you know, may or may not have wanted multifamily housing being near them. And I think that historically in the U.S., you know, post 70s, Construction has been very, very difficult in in all regions, especially in regions that are struggling, you know, with housing right now, like, like West Coast, New England, D.C. But we're even seeing this in cities, like you said, in Indianapolis and Minneapolis. 
is it, yeah, Minneapolis just came out with a proposal to allow fourplexes uh, in single family oh, right. zones. And my heart was just like, oh, this is amazing. This is, <laughs> it's a, the unzoning of this, this overly restrictive zoning. And it's not going to, it's not going to solve the housing price crisis in any sense, but it starts to alleviate it. So back to Seattle. So what ended up being allowed, I think, was insufficient for the actual growth that has happened. And then we have this situation where these urban villages have seen tremendous growth in population. And also, it was effectively a bullseye on a lot of buildings in those regions. And so a big thing that we're struggling with is older kind of existing multifamily buildings are kind of ripe for construction or for uh, being redeveloped. And then the small kind of mom and pop stores that everybody loves are also kind of at risk, at a higher risk. But all of the single family homes and all of the areas outside of the urban village, a lot of them are depopulating because there's no new construction really allowed. We allow ADUs, but it's super restrictive. And so we don't actually have that many ADUs that are constructed. And so there's depopulation. And so really what you're seeing is you're seeing this huge influx of kind of moderate income and low income people in the urban villages because it's really the places that they can afford to find, you know, housing. And then the outer regions, the single family zones, are this complete inversion where 40 years ago, 30 years ago, you could have bought a house in Seattle for under $10,000. Today, it's, you know, well worth over a million dollars. And so those people are selling because they're retiring, cashing out, moving, or just, you know, passing on. And the people who buy that house, right, they're not buying a house for a little bit more than the previous owner paid for it. You know, these are, you know, generally wealthier people who can afford a, you know, six, seven, eight hundred thousand dollar plus house. And the issue is so much of the urban growth is really just restricted to, it's really just going to end up being rentals. But the renters who live within that group don't really have prominent means of expressing interest in how they would like things to develop. Again, because so many of the community groups are also kind of captured by homeowners. And so we get this really interesting dichotomy that we have these neighborhood groups that are homeowners, and we have these kind of more renter and homeowner, more diverse I guess, groups that are trying to say, okay, we need to start moving beyond this really non-modern, non-equitable form of living. Um, The city hasn't really taken a great approach to dealing with it. And uh, that's one of the reasons why I think that we should be looking to Vienna. But also, like, what we're going to do is going to allow some affordable housing. And it may allow for, you know, the kind of cooperative about group that we're interested in doing. It may open up the space for us to do something like that. But, you know, the families who aren't as fortunate as as we are, I mean, I don't know. They don't really have a shot at the affordable housing just because the demand is going to be so high. And the market rate housing, again, is going to be out of reach for everybody. So it's kind of, we're going to do all of this work. We'll eventually get somewhere, but it's not going to be enough. We're going to need to do (laughs) even more in the future. So we're going to be playing this game where, yeah, I think the San Francisco, the Bay Area is already there, right? Where we're... We're never building enough. We're we're always going to be kind of struggling to correct it somehow, but we're always going to come up short. Um, so I think it's a really difficult question. You know, the funding of stuff is a big portion of that. So there's a big push for public banks in Seattle, but HUD is gonna HUD is gonna take a huge hit over the next couple of years. I'm sure. You know, the the financing for affordable housing, I think, is gonna start to dry up. And and so we're going to be left with this situation where we live in a market society. And even though I would rather us not live in a market society, we need to find ways to build housing that is not market-oriented housing. Okay, go. How do we do it? Uh, yeah. So for me, I mean, that's kind of, that's part of my, my affinity with Twitter is this kind of this possibility to interact with people 
who are working on co-ops and Baugruppen or um, you just non-market oriented projects. And, but then there's also like people who are like, oh, well, I only want to see market rate projects. And it's like, okay, you know, I can, I can, I'm at least interested in, in hearing what your side of the story is. And, you know, we're all kind of moving in the same direction. So as long as we're all kind of moving in the same direction, uh, maybe we can compare notes or something. But I think that, you know, we have to build. And if we don't build, then the, the housing crisis is, is only going to get more dire. And so, you know, the big tussle is what gets built. What does it look like and where does it go? For, for comparison to people who, you know, might be listening to this and don't know much about Vienna social housing, someone like you in Vienna, so a professional, you know, with a job, married, uh, I assume your your spouse has a job as well, and you have children and you essentially are living a car-free life, you're middle class, right? How would someone in Vienna be living who is in your situation, what what would their housing situation be? So I think it's like 65, 70% of the housing in Vienna is social housing. And social housing mm-hmm. is kind of this catch-all term for nonprofit uh, developed or owned or managed housing, limited profit, cooperatives, municipally owned housing. In the U.S., we call housing like that public housing. But it's kind of public housing in the U.S. is generally in the last couple of decades been more kind of low-income housing. In Austria and in, even in other places, social housing is kind of this encapsulating or encompassing uh, middle-class incomes and lower incomes. And so one of the more interesting things about Austria as well, especially with regards to the social housing, the limit on your income is only there at the beginning. So let's say you're early on in your career and you start to make more money and you get more income, you're not going to get kicked out of social housing because all of a sudden you're making, you know, 15% more than you were when you started. That's not the case in the U.S., right? Like in the U.S., if you start earning more money, they're going to push you out into the market and that space ends up getting utilized by some other low-income family. And so there's kind of this uh, musical chairs that happens in the U.S., but I think that it's not as much of an issue in Vienna. The Tenancy laws in, in Germany and Austria are also much more different. It's generally an indefinite tenure. So it's assumed you're going to live in one place. You're going to rent one place right. for the rest of your life. You know, here in the U.S., one year, I guess, is usual or month to month if uh, you're in a tight housing market. So I think that kind of plays into it as well. But a lot of the social housing projects, are they're dense. They're transit adjacent. The amenities in so many of these buildings are phenomenal. There's community rooms. There's saunas, there's cafes, there's grocery stores. They're adjacent to parks, right? They become like this this hub of really, I think, for the way that we live and the way that we would like to live, like this really aspirational kind of model. And in the U.S., like this, you know, we're, we're not doing anything that's, that's, that's comparable. And exactly. we're definitely not putting, you know, a sauna. One of the social housing projects in Vienna has a shooting range, right? Like, it's got a model shop. We're not putting any of this into our projects. And, and in Vienna, this is kind of like this. A lot of this, I think, goes back to to Red Vienna when the Social Democrats took over after World War One. was the housing that they were building was it was about building up people. And so it was giving them a kitchen. It was giving them a place to do laundry. They put their libraries in their buildings, the community centers, kindergartens. Right? So the social housing really became a, a hub for the community. And it kind of, once you get to that kind of critical mass that they've got, right, you can't go back. You can't go back to market rate housing after that. And so, you know, even today, like 70% of the construction in Vienna is social housing. It's not market housing. And it's, it's I took Lloyd Alter on a trip to Vienna. It was like, you go here, you go here. And 
it's just the most beautiful, elegant buildings. A lot of them are passive house now. And it's, it's a really different way of, of living than anything that we could even conceive of, sadly. <laughs> if anything, though, I would guess that Seattle might be the place that would get it first. Uh, I mean, you guys have elected a socialist to the to the Senate, right? Or to the Congress. Um, yeah. I mean, I feel like if you're out there and you obviously from your Twitter feed, you're going to all these public meetings, you're talking about densification and about taking housing out of the, the yeah, the market driven profit sector and into just how can people live their lives in the city? If anything, Seattle would be the place that would achieve that, I think, in this country. I would hope that we that we would. The uh, Sawant is a, she's our, our socialist council member. Right. Um, been, on some of the housing issues, she's been pretty good. On some of them, I would like to, to kind of push her in another direction. But socialist alternative is and the transit rider union, transit riders union and a couple of other groups are really pushing for a, a head tax to fund affordable housing. Sorry, a what tax? The head tax, an employee head tax. Okay, yep. Uh, to fund affordable housing. And and I actually would like us to go a step further. And I mean, we have this opportunity coming up for um, the redevelopment of a defunct reservoir if it gets decommissioned, that we could have this Vienna-like project. I think it's like eight or nine acres. You know, we could easily get, you know, eight, nine hundred, a thousand homes you know, high quality, all affordable, it's city-owned land, keep half of it open as, as park space, incorporate, you know, kindergartens and cafes, and, you know, other things necessary to make this livable, not just for the people who would get to live in the, in the social housing there, but also, you know, for all of the people who live in the development around it. You know, it's really kind of a, a means of reactivating and reinvesting in their neighborhood. And it's three blocks from a light rail station that's about to be completed. So, like, to me, like, that would be an a really, really excellent place and way to kind of kickstart this new social housing revolution. And the uh, PPP, as uh, the Public Policy Projects, uh, Matt Brunig, they're about to come out with a paper on a new push for social housing in U.S. cities. So I'm really looking forward to excellent. to seeing how that kind of affects conversations. Cool. Yeah. Let's hope it keeps moving in the right direction. So, Mike, I, I don't know if you listen to the podcast too much, but uh, we're kind of at the point where I asked uh, two questions. Um, what are you reading and what are you listening to today? Uh, what am I reading? So I just was handed uh, the new Alexi Sherman book, and I haven't mm-hmm. had a chance to open it yet. Before that, I have a book on collective housing that my wife got me for Valentine's Day uh, that was really uh, – it's on collective housing essentially in Switzerland. It's another way of looking at kind of living in community. Uh, and what am I listening to? I'm generally listening to kind of minimal techno. Uh, <laughs> I, I have to compl- minimal details. Right, no minimal surprise, techno. right? Minimal details, <laughs> the, the Euro techno, but like none of the, none of the really awful stuff. Like it's more kind of orchestral oriented stuff these days. Can you name a, uh, an artist? Can I name an artist? Johan Johansson, who unfortunately just passed away. Oh, just passed away. Yeah. Yeah. I saw him here in Seattle a couple of years ago and it was a really, it was a beautiful show. His uh, soundtrack for Arrival was just, that was, it was Arrival, right? And that blew me away. I don't know that I've seen Arrival. Sci-fi movie. uh, I forget who the main character is. Amy Adams. Amy Adams, yeah. Were the big. Oh, yes. No, we did see that. Yes. Yeah, the soundtrack to that was phenomenal. Yeah, it's amazing how his his sound can affect, uh, uh, can really, convey emotion and, and really manipulate 
your uh like the beginning and the end of the the the, the film that that piece that was played was really just you gave you a power a sense of the power of the film and the the underlying narrative that you get surprised with at the end. So there was an eight hour album released on Spotify today that is definitely categorized in the minimal, uh, not, not so much techno, but minimal uh, category that was designed specifically to play while you're sleeping. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And it's actually, it's actually eight pretty hours good. Is perfect. It was designed to coincide with the different uh, sleep states that you go through, through a, an eight hour and 24 <laughs> minute sleep, sleep cycle. So, Ken, given your propensity to sleep three hours a night, you'd be listening to it over the course of like four nights to get up to the full eight hours. (laughs) I have six hours ahead of me. (laughs) (laughs) Good. (laughs) No, has anyone seen the the Netflix documentary, uh, Wild Wild Country yet? Not yet. Four or six part series? You have to watch this. I've heard of it. Yeah, but I haven't seen it. I'm just blown away by this. It's about the, the, um, Bhagwan Sri Rajneesh and the oh, commune out yeah. there in uh, Oregon. Oh yeah, yeah. I saw the uh, I saw the trailer it is, it, online. Uh, it's little. brilliant. It reminded me of another documentary that is, I believe, it's on Netflix. What is it? it's it's about a uh, commune, uh, this cult that uh, originated in Los Angeles in the um, in the seventies, the Source Family. That's another great one to watch. Definitely check that out. Let's be clear that we're not uh, equating cults with Bow Group in here, okay, Mike? We're not. <laughs> Definitely not. No, no, Our no. Bow Group is uh, we're cultish about bikes, about living car free, about living the most sustainable lives in an urban environment that we can. Um, yeah. But, but that's about the cult. extent of it. No, no polygamy or um... yeah, yeah. Okay. <laughs> Sex eight times a day, like Manson's group did, or something. No, none of that. None of that. Just uh... no. But I mean, you could have you could have a polygamous group, and I won't. You know, there's no judgment on my part. And if you, no if, uh, it's just not if part you of your need, official uh, someone to help design it, then then we would be all for it. <laughs> oh yeah, no, yeah, I'd absolutely design it. Just. Uh... Yeah. So I was looking through the I was looking through the thread again uh, the minimal details uh, thread. Do you still hate uh, that un- aligning screw as today as you do when you first saw it? Oh, oh, the Stephen Holt one. Yeah, you know what's interesting about that handrail? I loved how the the handrail that little minimal ramp that sloping surface that takes you into the chapel. The handrail the way it turns into the floor is is so beautiful and. And he did the same detail here at the uh, Rapson uh, School Edition, and it is it, because it was steel. It's such a clunkier detail than it is when it's uh, the brass. The brass, yeah, or red bronze. It's not all red bronze. It's just brass. You know, the the screw. This, this goes back to my 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 Euro side, or or not Euro side. Um, I think like a decade ago, which is probably about when that thread started. At the time, it just it bothered me so much. Today, maybe not so much, maybe like 80%. It's, but I have to say, my, the, my favorite part about that entire building, and it's a lovely building, if you're in Seattle, uh, definitely go to it, is the, the beeswax room. Yes, yeah. It's yeah, phenomenal. It's like, it's, it's so subtle. Um, I took my daughter there, and she was just like, what is this? It's so weird. And I was like, isn't it beautiful? And, uh, you know, she was, you know, she'd never experienced anything like that. And it's... You know, this goes back, I guess, back to you know, kind of my affinity for uh, Zumthor for a lot of the same reasons, right? Like the, yeah. the phenomenological aspect of those spaces. To me, like that's that's where I dig out now. Like I don't, I don't really. The details are important to me. I don't dive on them quite as much as I used to. 
maybe not jive isn't the right word. I don't, I don't dig on them quite as much as I used to. Uh, and they're still important to me, but it, the quality of the, the space now, I think, uh, Hmm. Is, is really what I'm more attuned to. I think that thread was the first time I had ever seen the uh, the bocce circular outlet. So when I... When, when, I've never respected them on any platform. Well, you know, it's interesting because I did on my own house in, in our when we, when we redid our kitchen uh, a couple of years ago, and I had my contractor find it, and he... It's a company based out of Vancouver, and they, and they sell for like 250 bucks each. And I was like, I was like, there's, I, I love these outlets, but there's no way we're doing 250. But the our contractor ended up finding circular outlets at Home Depot and cut them up and, and customize them, and they look exactly the same for three bucks each. <laughs> oh, that's it, it, yeah, it's it's beautiful and functional and uh, $247 cheaper. That's the true minimal detail is that it's that inexpensive as well. Yep. Oh, Mike, it's been so fun talking with you. This has been great. Yeah, it was great having you on. I I'm so into everything that 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 you're doing and and what you're into. It would be uh, it'd be awesome if you could if you could write for Arconnect if you ever uh, you know get an itch to talk about something. We can talk about that. I'm always up for it. All right, excellent. Thanks to Mike for joining us this week. If you have any questions, comments, or suggestions, you can reach us on Twitter at our Twitter account Arc Sessions or with hashtag Arconnect Sessions. You can also send us an email to connect at arconnect.com. And if you enjoy this podcast, please consider rating us and giving us a review on iTunes. Thanks and talk to you next time.